Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Elon Musk, democracy and Twitter. We'll be talking to Bruce Daisley, former European vice president of Twitter and the author of a book called Fortitude, something that half of the staff of Twitter will be needing at the moment, having been made redundant by Elon Musk. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. Now, there's no billionaire in the background telling us what to say. No oligarch or hedge fund financing us. We rely entirely on people like you to support our free and fearless journalism. You'll find out how to subscribe over at our website, bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. So please subscribe if you can. More info at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Bruce Daisley. And Bruce, I think it's just worth reflecting on your own time at Twitter. You worked there from 2012 to 2020. This was in the period of Twitter's massive expansion as a social media platform. What were your thoughts on it as a first as a fledgling employee and then rising to the ranks of European vice president? When I first started there, I think it's fair to say that Twitter went on a, a really fascinating journey. And, and the truth about all digital products is that we find ourselves, I guess, inspired with optimism when new products come along. You know, we think, oh, well, this could be dazzling. It could be transformational. It could be democratic. And so when I first joined Twitter, it was like celebrities were talking to each other. In fact, I was really inspired. I went to San Francisco and I found loads of small businesses like cafes, shops, restaurants were putting their Twitter handle on the window. And it just felt like this opportunity to sort of for different places to give a voice and to start a dialogue with the people who use them. So you'd go into in the streets of San Francisco, you'd go into sort of small cafes and there seemed to be for the first time, there was like this transformational relationship taking place. In fact, one of the first things I did when I got the job at Twitter, we hired someone who their job was to go around bars and restaurants just getting bars and restaurants to sign up. Because we thought if we could sort of agitate and create that, it felt just fresh and different. And I've got no doubt that businesses have used newspapers and they've used other media before, but it just felt like a really powerful way to connect people with the places that they went. At the time, we very quickly started to see a few things that you couldn't help but be inspired by. I remember vividly an article by John Prescott, I think in 2012, where John Prescott I've just joined Twitter and was a victim at the time of a series of mistruths published in newspapers. And he said that the challenge in the old days said that, you know, something was published in the Mail on Sunday or, the, or you know, the, the Sun, and you might contact them and demand a retraction. And he said what Twitter had done is it had allowed someone like him to immediately post something, draw attention, get 50,000 retweets, and effectively to have something retracted in real time so that it didn't influence the news agenda of TV shows. It didn't carry any weight. And it just felt inspiring in the way that it was giving voice to people and it was allowing this democratization of the means of consuming media. Now, I recognize it changed over a course of time, but certainly the really interesting thing is whenever you find yourself having a discourse about social products or social media, people have got 
a bias to the knowledge that they've currently got that they say, oh, well, it was always obvious how this was going to evolve. It was always obvious. Let me tell you, no one working at the product knows what's going to happen. No one using them knows what's happened. You know, I always say to people when they say, oh, it's obvious what's going to happen. I say, oh, right. Make some predictions for me then. Tell me what's the big thing that's going to change. And it's far harder in advance to predict these things. So, you know, it was a really optimistic time, and, it, and I was a huge user of Twitter, so to get the opportunity to go and work there was was a joyous thing for me personally. My colleague Heidi Kuda, who's a regular contributor to the Byline Times podcast and also makes the excellent Radicalised pod, made the point at the moment that Elon Musk took over that Twitter has been a very imperfect beast, but it has allowed investigative journalists like ourselves from all over the world to connect and communicate. So before we talk about some of the negatives, which there undoubtedly have been, even before Elon Musk, I just think it's worth reflecting a little bit on how it's allowed people in authoritarian regimes, people living in non-authoritarian regimes, but who nevertheless want to raise a dissenting voice, how they have been able to use Twitter as a means to express their opinions. Yeah, well, just before I joined Twitter myself, there was the Arab Spring. And it's really interesting sort of watching how people learn how to hack systems. You know, someone told me about kids at the school that he taught at. And he said, the school put a ban on YouTube, put a ban on various social media apps. And so every kid in the school had found a free VPN and was using the free VPN to do it. And it's like, you know, right now, if you search on TikTok for Iranian content, you'll find a load of content. The frustration immediately becomes, I don't know how to consume this because I can't translate it. But you can see that people who, despite overt bans, are making their way to reach out to the outside world. It's inspiring. I think the only reason that you or I know the name Greta Thunberg is because of social media. That In the old days, this would be a, a news item that maybe would have reached the Stockholm newspaper after she'd been doing it for a year, six months. And then maybe after she'd been doing it for two years, it would have reached international news. Whereas, in fact, a couple of years ago, she was rumoured to be sort of going to get the Nobel Prize. So people are able to elevate and to transmit their voice in a way that I think that intermediation prevented before. So, look, it's been fabulous for that. And I remain optimistic that social media can be a really strong force for good in that regard. Yeah, even before Elon Musk's takeover, pornography disinformation and hate speech were all common on Twitter. Anybody who remembers when England were beaten in the Euro final, missed penalties by black footballers, were seized upon by Twitter users. So it has been at times a, a pretty horrible place to be if you're any kind of minority. I couldn't agree more. The first exposure I had to that was when I'd joined Twitter in 2012. It was an amazing and an optimistic place because you were starting to see a lot of very funny female voices. You know, Catelyn Moran was huge on Twitter, Grace Dent. There was a whole realm of funny women who, and Catelyn Moran used to say, look, you know, it's pretty evident that the thing that's stopping us getting onto panel shows on TV isn't a lack of humour, it's a lack of a platform. It's a, the, the fact that the gatekeepers have made decisions to prevent us. And it was like a really liberating moment. It felt like, wow, social media is a force for good. And then during the course of that year, there was a campaigner, Caroline Criada Perez, 
brilliant and inspiring woman had campaigned to get a woman on a banknote. And she started receiving loads of death threats. Now, at the time, it was a really sort of fraught time for her. She was getting all this abuse. And honestly, being inside an organization, a Silicon Valley organization at that time, you immediately think, well, why aren't we doing more? Firstly, the quality of the discourse, the abuse in the UK was significantly worse than anywhere around the world. You know, that tribalism that we witnessed in football. You don't really get away fans in American sport. And so they don't have anything like Leeds versus Man United, where there's people in pitch battles in the street. And so as a result of that, they can't quite imagine this nastiness of discourse. I was not alone in saying, well, look, you know, let's close down these abusing people. And firstly, it was deeply under-resourced. And secondly, often you find these firms attempts to remove themselves from the discourse. So I'll give you a good example. This is late on. These things didn't go away. I was at Twitter for eight years. In my sort of last year at Twitter, there was a very prominent Jewish voice who was contacting me and saying, look, the amount of anti-Semitic abuse I get is off the charts. I said, look, do two things for me. Anytime you see any, report it because, you know, we've got rules in place, blah, blah, blah. And if you don't get any response, let me know. And he'd come back to me and he'd say, I've reported this. And let's say someone had said to him, you're a Jewish C word. Okay. He'd reported it and Twitter had told him that's not against our rules. Now he said to me, look, you've told me to report this. And Twitter rules had come back and said, that's not against our rules. And I would say, well, look, you know, surely, you know, that's not just someone describing him and then using an insult. But they would say, well, it's not against our rules. He is Jewish and we don't prohibit people swearing at each other. And it just felt to me like, okay, it's really interesting. If you compare it to TikTok, now TikTok is, you know, Chinese business. But if I came on there and I did a TikTok and I posted abuse to you, I'd get suspended. I think I'd get a seven-day suspension immediately. So it became clear to me, you can lay the lines of what's allowed and what's not allowed. And you make a decision on it. And effectively, a lot of the tech firms make decisions that are just easier for them to implement. Is that because there is a, if you like, an attitude, perhaps a cultural attitude in the United States, a belief in a more literal interpretation of free speech than perhaps there is in the UK, where maybe we're more sensitive to hate speech? Or is it just that it becomes an expensive problem if you have to start intervening in these kind of disputes. I think there's a philosophy that runs through a lot of these firms, and the leaders are often quite thoughtful people, that says we shouldn't protect people from insults. There's a wonderful Rowan Atkinson talk to Parliament. And Rowan Atkinson, I think at the time, he's talking about religious abuse and people criticising other religions. And Rowan Atkinson, in a very sort of lyrical speech, says the only answer to negative speech is more speech. He says, we shouldn't prohibit someone insulting Muhammad. We shouldn't prevent someone insulting Jesus. You know, we should just allow all the talk. And you can create a philosophical argument which says, if someone wants to come onto the internet and call, whether it's Elon Musk, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Rishi Sunak, if someone wants to call them a fool, then we shouldn't prohibit that. And I do get all of that. But quite often it transcends from calling them a fool, to deliberately toxic, aggressive, violent imagery. And the really interesting thing, a lot of people will come onto social media, they'll say horrible class A swear words about Boris Johnson. Now, these are people who would consider themselves to be intelligent, refined individuals. And yet 
there's something about social media where we believe we've got a right to abuse people in the public eye. So you end up in a situation where a lot of the tech firms say, look, it's not our job to delve into the world of opinion. It's not our job to intervene in questions of abuse. I think it's a mistake, personally. I think you can set the bar of what's permitted with a slightly tighter rigour. I used to say to people all the time, surely we shouldn't allow someone to come onto Twitter and call a stranger a swear word. That's my view. Be that stranger, the person who lives down the street, someone you don't know who supports another football team or the prime minister. I don't think you should be allowed to come onto the internet and call a stranger a swear word. The interesting thing about that is that some people might agree with me on the stranger. Some people might agree with me on they don't want their mum to read a swear word, but they believe that it's their right to call Donald Trump a swear word. And so that's where the complexity of this comes in. And broadly, I think tech firms end up saying, let's just let it all happen. Let's not prevent anything. So there's decisions made there. Yeah, indeed. And and those decisions are not neutral, are they? So they may be born of some philosophical belief in free speech, but it also suits the tech companies, doesn't it? Because a row, you know, we're all familiar with the term, a Twitter row, sparking conversation and debate elsewhere. So it helps to promote the name of the company. And I, I want to push back on that. What you find is that when you ask people who don't use Twitter, about a quarter of the British population use Twitter. When you ask people who don't use Twitter, normally their opinions are pretty brand negative. So they'll say, oh, it's a place full of argument. The idea that this is marketing for Twitter, that somehow being the best known sewage plant in town is somehow good for business is an illusion, really. You know, occasionally news stories hit the news. If like people say, oh, there was this wonderful thing that happened. You know, someone came and they, they posted this and all these acts of kindness. That's brand positive. But, you know, the idea that somehow knowing that if you go onto the internet, there's loads of people arguing with Piers Morgan and that's good for business is an illusion. Donald Trump was not good for business for Twitter. Mm, okay. Well, that's an interesting insight. I, I think there are those at least who would disagree with that and say that it, it in, at least encourages engagement. But the BBC have done an analysis over a six-week period showing that more than 3,000 offensive tweets are sent to UK MPs every day. We know that some of those are highly sexualized, particularly when turned towards women. And this perhaps goes back to the conversation you mentioned earlier with Kathleen Moran, that for some people, and I'd say perhaps particularly for women, the toxicity of the debates can be so off-putting that it can ruin debate and drive them away from Twitter. And that's got to be the fear, hasn't it, is that certain voices are forced off the platform. They're effectively shouted down. That weakens our democracy. Yeah, there's a really interesting thing. So let's look at that. Let's imagine that someone has decided that they saw Marc Francois, Tory MP on the news, and they decided, I'm going to send him a tweet because I've got an opinion about him. Matt Hancock, I've got an opinion about him. What you find is something very adjacent to what you observe in gaming communities. So people who play computer games, quite often they'll use homophobic slurs about other players. They'll use horrible things about each other. And what was discovered in research was that when you tell people you've just committed an act of trolling, they're astonished. They don't believe that they are the problem. And what's discovered, actually, is that if you give someone a ban or you give someone a warning, it often has a disproportionate effect. You tell someone you banned for 24 hours for posting, they go, 
Me, but I'm not the problem. Mark Francois is... Matt Hancock is the problem. Once you tell them that it's against the rules, then my view was very strong. When you find yourself working in a big technology company like this, you can either sort of toe the company line or you can think, look, to some extent, I think they're getting this wrong. So my job here is to fight and argue. Makes you deeply unpopular internally. There was a very prominent female MP about three or four years ago who's getting a lot of abuse. And I witnessed it one morning, one Sunday morning, and started reporting it myself. Again, the team came back and said, well, this is hostile. It isn't against our rules. And my, my response very clearly was, you know, we wrote these rules. The idea that somehow these are like passed down to us, like the Ten Commandments, it ended up on the front of every national newspaper within 24 hours. We shouldn't be waiting for billionaires to change the rules for us. We shouldn't be waiting for whether it's Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, whether it's the next billionaire, Mark Zuckerberg. We shouldn't be waiting to see what Zuckerberg's new rules are. These are things that democracy should take into their own hands. Because let me tell you, in Germany, Germany introduced a rule which was really clear. Germany's sort of got a history of understanding its legacy of Nazism. And so in Germany, on social media, you can't post any Nazi imagery and you can't post anything overtly in support of, of Nazis. But if you do post something there, because the fines are so substantial for leaving it up there, if you do post something up, I guarantee it will be removed from social platforms, whether they are Facebook or uh, Instagram or, or Twitter. It'll be removed within minutes. We've got this rough idea because the story we're told, either through lived experience or through sort of spokespeople for these brands, is that, um, oh, you know, you can't control this. This is free speech. You know, there's going to be some bumps in the road. And what you learn very quickly is that with good regulation, we can fix these things. So then it becomes a question of, okay, so we've been led to believe that this is a huge swimming pool. We can't keep everyone in the ocean safe. And now you see in Germany, oh, by an effective system of lifeguards and a good system of rules, you can make this safe. And it's this false opposition that sometimes we're led to believe that these things are unpoliceable. They are policeable. You should make the executives who work there liable and you should increase the fines. And what you'll find very quickly is these things that we consider to be sort of the unexpected consequence of social media, they can be very quickly removed. Yeah, I suppose I'm driving at the point, though, that even before Elon Musk's takeover, and he's got a, a very libertarian view of free speech, Twitter was a platform where conspiracies like QAnon were allowed to be promoted. The January the 6th insurrection was promoted as well. And I suppose I'm just asking the question of whether you personally feel that, and, and I think you do from what you've said, that hitherto Twitter should actually have been more vigorous in its policing of itself and of its users. Yes, but what I will say to you, Adrian, is that what you've learned very quickly is that the challenge is, is that social platforms can't necessarily be the arbiters of truth in every situation. Someone came to me a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, you know, someone used to come out and post this rumour about me on social media. It's very difficult. The challenge of that probably is about someone needing to take it into their own hands and work out what their legal recourse is on that. And maybe the issue is anonymity there. You imagine the amount of court cases. I mean, that I, I, I understand there will be cases like that, but that's not the same as Hillary Clinton being involved in a, in a paedophile conspiracy. I, that I agree. How governs the United States. Absolutely. I agree. But, but witness 
it's evidently a scale. Now, we understand that Hillary Clinton is a really big story and, you know, that whole conspiracy is a really big story. But at the very least, the lesson that Elon Musk has got right now is beware of simple answers to complicated problems. In real time, Elon Musk is learning that the locker room banter that he'd cooked up that was going to solve the problems of Twitter isn't working. There's an old adage in software, which is called the programmer's credo. We do these things not because they are simple, but because we thought they were going to be simple. That's the challenge. So you might go, oh, yeah, but the Hillary Clinton one is obvious. You deal with that. But then you go, okay, well, how about if there's a similar rumor in Germany about someone there, you're going to intervene there? And how does a platform become the arbiter of truth? There's a reason why there's judicial systems and courtrooms and because these things are far from easy. If someone comes today and makes a statement about something, can you genuinely at scale with you know half a billion tweets every day, can you come in and say, oh, you've got to take that down because it's not true? Can you? And that's the challenge. You know, to some extent, I think we've got to stop seeing a separation between the real world and the internet world. You know, to some extent, some of these things you should be able to legally pursue them. If someone slanders you, then you should have the right to pursue that. But you can't expect the platforms themselves to to intervene in every case because it's simply, you know, it's impossible to do it. Elon Musk has laid off about half the workers of Twitter. That will pose difficulties, I suspect, for the moderation of the site. I know a number of advertisers have paused their spending on Twitter. Are you fearful for its future under Elon Musk? It looks it looks chaotic. He's got sort of a Liz Trust mini budget vibe to it, hasn't it? It's like, surely it can't carry on like this. I think, you know, the best thing he can do right now, I would say, is calm things down, uh, probably appoint a chief exec, say, look, I'm not going to be making the decisions of this. I'm just, you know, keen user number one and try and calm things down. They, try and remove the chaos of it. In the same way that the arrival of Jeremy Hunt at least brought some calm, people thought, okay, no more crazy stuff is going to take place. I think it needs a bit like that. I would presume he spent a lot of money. He's probably spent, I've been saying he spent four times the value on it. Over the last couple of days, people have sort of quibbled with that, saying it's probably five times. He's really overpaid for this. He seems a very unpredictable guy, but you would hope that a degree of um, <laughs> common sense will prevail. That's what you'd hope. I mentioned that half of the people of Twitter have lost their jobs, so they could probably do with your recent book called Fortitude, which is about resilience, developing inner strength, but I think part of the narrative of the book is actually the idea of resilience that we've been sold is perhaps a little bit of a neocon trick. Exactly that. The way we encounter resilience is that our colleagues who are feeling burnt out are told, I know you're burnt out, but what you need is a resilience course. Or you know, kids who are feeling overwhelmed at school, they might confess a moment of feeling fragile and yet teachers pull them aside and say, OK, we're going to do a resilience course. And what effectively it does is it tries to reframe responsibility away from people who are experiencing something toxic into saying, oh, this is on you. Why weren't you more resilient? And that's what you discover. You discover through the, the whole way that resilience is framed is that effectively we don't look at the fact that you're on 40 hours a week of Zoom calls and you've got all these emails and you're you asking you to work through your lunch hour. 
but rather you're not resilient enough. Or the fact that kids are getting more homework than ever before, they're feeling more isolated than ever before. When they confess a moment of vulnerability, we say, oh yeah, well, you're not resilient enough. And what you find is when you delve into it, the whole ethos of resilience, we wouldn't consider psychology to be a an area that politics would intervene. But most of the teaching about resilience comes from the US and it comes from sort of a post-Reaganite school of psychology, which is all about the individual. And here's the thing about resilience is that truly, if we see resilience in the wild and we see it all around us, right? Resilience isn't the scarce thing. We see it in people in Ukraine and we go, okay, well, like these people are just astonishingly resilient. They seem to be showing bravery in the face of this relentless and, and unending torture by the, the Russians. And you might conclude then, oh, right, did Vladimir Putin invade the most resilient nation in the world? Or am I getting the wrong end of the stick here? There's a, a wonderful American social scientist called Enrico Quarantelli, and he used to go into natural disasters and look at what happened. He went looking for that thing familiar from Jurassic Park, which was mass panic. He was looking for sort of people screaming with their arms flailing in the air. And what he found was he couldn't find it anywhere. What he said was, actually, what you discover in natural disasters is like this wonderful coming together, this community, this sense of sort of comradeship, this sense of connection, and people are actually able to survive far more than they believe possible. And that's the misdirection. We've been schooled this individualistic version, this Reaganite version of resilience. Resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And one of the things I was struck by in the book, which I would recommend to our listeners, is really deeply researched, uh, you know, kind of fascinating insight to something which any of us who've been in the world of work will recognise ultimately that emphasis on social connection of one kind or another, deeply, deeply unfashionable in many respects. But finding friends, doing things with other people is is part of the building blocks of resilience. Absolutely. There was one piece of work that blew me away and it was done right at the start of the pandemic, that moment when sort of we might have found ourselves queuing up outside Lidl to get a four pack of toilet rolls or someone in the family was sent out foraging for pasta shells each morning. And what was discovered was teenagers who were having a family meal with their families in the week, maybe for the first time ever, you know, having a, an evening meal every night, their depression went down and their resilience went through the roof. Now, this is an audience that's typically written off as lacking in and resilience and what you realize is that social connection feeling connected to other people drawing strength from each other is the hidden thing and because of this version of reaganite psychology that's been peddled to us we've lost sight of this if you knew okay your dad was feeling down what he needed to do was get himself to one of these things that become popular in australia men's sheds which is a place where men of retirement age gather together and work on woodworking projects or metalworking projects in fact they've they've removed the gender element of it and they're inviting loads of people if you knew that connection was the secret source of people feeling better then we would ladle it all over everything we do. But we're sort of misguided. We've given this illusion that resilience is something that some of us have and some of us don't have, and them's the breaks. Interesting stuff, Bruce. Thank you. Bruce Daisley's book, Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength, is out now. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, which is funded by subscriptions to our wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. I would urge you to get a subscription if you can, firstly, because it is a great read. And if you get the monthly newspaper, it has reading in there that you cannot get access to anywhere else. There's also the added benefit 
of your subscription helping to fund this podcast. So it's a win-win from where I'm sitting. Do please consider taking out a subscription. You get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's our excellent news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed. We'll see you next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.